From Washington, this is the Macrocast, a podcast brought to you by Penta and Markets Policy Partners. Good morning and welcome to another episode of the Macrocast. I'm your host, Brian DeAngelis, partner here at Penta. And I'm joined, as always, by our colleague and friend, John Fagan from Markets Policy Partners. We gave uh, Brendan the day off. I think he's out in, in Utah doing something fun. He's hip deep in powder. Yeah, good <laughs> for <him>. City. <laughs> Love it. Uh, but but we have a very uh, special guest um, joining us from, from the Penta team, Jill Craig, our partner in Penta's Brussels office. And we're here today. We'll cover some of the, the big news this week, John, with the, the Fed. But we also asked Jill to, to join us and give a little bit of the European perspective as today marks the, the one-year anniversary of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. So we'll we'll dive into all of that in this episode and, and probably a lot more. Um, John, let's let's start with you though. Uh, hot off the presses, the the Fed's I don't know formally favorite inflation reading, maybe still favorite inflation reading core PCE. What what did we get this morning, and and how are folks reacting? Yeah, another day, another upside surprise in U.S. economic data, and more pointedly, U.S. inflation data. Core PCE, the core PCE price index, uh, not exactly uh, something that rolls off the tongue, right. uh, but it was, as you say, the the Fed's focused uh, on this as their particular preferred metric for a long period of time. I think that's probably changed. That's evolved a little bit. But nevertheless, the core PCE index came in hotter than expected today. But, you know, markets were already bracing for this. We'd seen upside surprises for January's consumer price uh, index and producer price index. All the other indications had shown that there was a reacceleration of the economy and prices in January. This is uh, this has completely changed, you know, the narrative in markets from a, from a sort of placid January where we uh, where we were you know, experiencing this uh, anticipation of the end of the Fed's tightening cycle and uh, and the data that's come in from January uh, as we've uh, gotten into February here has uh, has basically upended that expectation and uh, and put markets on notice that the Fed has more to do uh, and uh, and it's not taking it particularly well. This is a you know, to the inflation, you couldn't call this good news, the inflation number uh, being hotter than expected, but it's been accompanied by much firmer economic activity readings like this month's uh, consumer spending uh, and personal income data comes in, uh, looks up, you know, above 1%, a big rebound from December. So, uh, so this is, you know, but these positive economic readings aren't being taken as good news. They're being taken into feeding feeding more uh, Fed aggression and uh, over the coming meetings, a higher end of the the tightening cycle and perhaps a harder landing in the second half of the year as a result. Yeah, we talked about this a little bit last week. I mean, it it feels like, you know, you can choose your own narrative around this economy and and depending on who you talk to, it's it's getting great. Here comes the soft landing. It's not great yet. Get, get ready it's pretty clear. We also had the the minutes from the Fed meeting released this week. Uh, it's pretty clear they're still very much kind of armed and and in a fighting posture on inflation. There was uh, several members. I want to say that they were pushing for even a higher uh, interest rate hike last time around. I think this data certainly suggests we're going to continue to see their foot on the gas in terms of interest rate hikes. 
Um, where, where do you see this, this headed? Do you still see kind of an end of year easing up or too early to tell on that front? Yeah, it is interesting looking at the way that the Fed has communicated. Essentially, it's not so much that their communications have changed over the past months, right. it's that the market's now listening. Exactly. The Fed's <laughs> you know, not surprised. Yeah. Yeah, it really came down to the the data coming in and validating what the Fed had been saying. And if you looked at just December and the and the slide into a very weak December number, then you know the markets were you know, not not offside and thinking that the Fed would probably get maybe another couple of 25 basis point rate hikes and maybe get rates up to 5% and then put it on hold. Uh, let, you know, the lags in policy are well known and let those feed through the tightening that's already occurred. Uh, and uh, and then, you know, reassess over the coming meetings. But uh, but that is not what the Fed had really been saying. There'd been a big disconnect between markets pricing, the futures, uh, Fed fund futures, et cetera. And so there's been a big uh, readjustment. Now, the, you know, the terminal rate, the the peak of the tightening cycle has been marked up from, you know, a finger in the wind around 5% to about 5.5%. Right. Uh, so that's a big move. But when you when you cast your eye out on Fed fund futures, they're still pricing in those additional rate hikes that just got priced in being priced out by cuts that are anticipated in sort of the December to January, maybe even as soon as November timeframe. And that is consistent with 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 stubborn expectations for a recession in the second half of 2023. And uh, and so, you know, despite the strength of economic growth now, that is not giving markets a lot of comfort that the economy will escape a recession. There's been a lot of commentary from Wall Street economists that this is, you know, there's it's not a hard landing. It's not a soft landing. It's no landing. The economy is going to reaccelerate here. But the markets aren't buying that. And uh, they still, you know, based on what the markets are seeing, they're still very there's a, it's a grim second half of the year outlook based on market pricing. So can we go deeper on that? Because, yeah, we've certainly spent a lot of time and uh, oxygen over the last few weeks discussing that. Um you know, we. It seems like I, I was starting to be a believer in the in the soft landing. Um, we even talked about, to your point, no landing. Uh, do you think is it is it this latest data or what's what's kind of spooking markets that this recession that seems to have been on the horizon now for for months, if not quarters, you know, and just keeps getting further and further. We never quite get there to the end of the rainbow, <laughs> if you will. Um, but now it seems like they're they're a little spooked that not only will it be here, that it may actually be a pretty hard crash into it at, that leads to cuts. Is that kind of your read on things? That's certainly if you're looking at the classic market-based recession indicator, the yield curve, the twos, tens mm-hmm. part of the yield curve, or wherever, which part, whichever part of the yield curve you want to look at, the Treasury yield curve, it is deeply inverted. The twos, tens, which is kind of the main one that people look at, everybody has their own favorite, but twos, tens is as inverted as it's been since like 1981. It's a, you know, it's blaring recession signal. Every time, you know, markets are obviously had a, equities at a horrible 2022. We got a little bit of a bounce in January. We've given a lot of that back in February. So equities don't like what they're seeing in particular. And, uh, you know, and when you look at commodities, it's not as though, you know, Oil prices and and copper prices and so forth are are really juiced up here. Uh, this is you know we're we're at multi month lows in mm-hmm. oil prices, which is consistent with a pretty glum uh, economic outcome. Even with China's reopening, there was a lot of expectation that, that would go up. You know, so there's a sense that you know 
if you look at December was really weak. If you look at January, it's really strong. Kind of put them together and what do you got? And uh, you still yeah, have, yeah. yeah, it doesn't really change the narrative that the economy, if, unless you, unless you take January as a reacceleration rather than just a, a rebound from an exceptionally weak December. Um, and so I think that, you know, the concept that markets are conveying is that this, that January strength is kind of a head fake and, uh, and, even if it's not a head fake, then, you know, the Fed is going to, you know, the Fed is going to land this plane, right? <laughs> They're not going to let this plane take hit the ground. Yeah. yeah prices would take off right with it. And, uh, and the Fed wouldn't see that. So uh, that just wouldn't countenance that. And so you have a situation in which, you know, one way or the other prepare for landing. Um, we're going to have, you know, the, the economy is either going to uh, touch down, in a uh, you know in a gentle trend here that uh, that the Fed has engineered, or the Fed is going to have to again really apply the 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 brakes and uh, and p- potentially uh, put us into a hard landing to yeah. uh, to to wring out the economic you know the economic animal spirits and and price pressures. Um, on that point, and maybe to wrap up this segment, um, you can you can yell at me later, but you know I love putting people on the spot. You, you think the next rate hike? They go back up to 0.5, or are they just going to stay steady at at a quarter? I think that they're going to stay steady at a quarter. I mean, they've already done a lot of tightening. I as as I said before, I don't think that the Fed's you know really taking the bait that much yeah. when it comes to these these data points that we're seeing in January. I think that you know Fed Chair Powell said as recently as the early February meeting that the disinflationary process has begun. Is he going to walk that comment back? I don't think so. No. I think he's probably going to do what he did with the you know non-farm payroll number, which is basically say, hey, that's one month, right? And there are a lot of idiosyncratic uh, aspects, particularly around the end of the year dynamics in January and the weakness in December and weather and not, you know, warmest January and forever. And uh, and so the sense that I've got is the Fed is, you know, they they know that they're near the top. This is not the time to, you know, to to make any hasty maneuvers. They've got you know, they've got the the March meeting and then they've got, you know, a sequence of June and July meetings and uh, and they can, you know, take their time. You know, inflation is, is you know, it's ticked up a little bit here, but it's not like roaring back uh, and uh, by a lot of different metrics. And so I think that they're going to stay on this measured 25 basis point pace uh, and take it that step by step. And we'll see if they get to the, you know, the market is expecting 55 percent by June. They're at 4.75 now. We'll see if they get there. There's a lot of time. Look at how the narrative changed in in, in two weeks. In two, right. right. I was going to say. <laughs> right. So then we could be times. right back into, you know, yeah. economic slowdown uh, as the as the dominant narrative in another, you know, flash forward another two weeks and we could be there. Yeah. But, you, but your point is right. I mean, um, forgive the the bad dad joke, but he'll he'll circle the runway as long as he has to before he he lands this. I think he's had a pretty good vision the whole time and kind of ignoring the noise and and really just kind of staying focused on what he wants to do. Uh, that's great. Um, well, let's let's take a break here. Um, we're going to jump deeper in uh, uh, some of the global issues we've been discussing, uh, particularly around Russia, Ukraine in our next segment with, with Jill Craig. And we'll be right back here on the Macrocast. Corporate leaders find themselves operating in a complex environment with the need to manage multiple stakeholders. 
On What's at Stake, a Penta podcast, you'll hear from executives, communications professionals, and other experts on how companies can better define, inform, and strengthen their decision-making, as well as their understanding of their own stakeholders. Tune in each week at the Penta podcast channel and find us online at pentagroup.co. We're back on the Macrocast. As I mentioned in our intro, we have a special guest with us today, Jill Craig, a Penta partner who runs our Brussels office. I invited Jill to join us today to, to mark the one-year anniversary of the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. Jill, thank you for, for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me back. Uh, I'd love to um, maybe just start, you know, this is a this is a big week. We've seen a lot of, of media attention to mark the one year anniversary. Um, U.S. President Biden went over to Ukraine at the start of the week. Uh, I'd love to just get a little bit of of your thoughts and your perspective sitting in Brussels of what it looks like a year in, maybe what we've learned. And, and if that we is is Europe versus the rest of us, that's fine. Uh, and where do you see things going from here? Yeah, I mean, I hope we learn a lot of things from this conflict. But um, let me just pick out a few that, that come to mind. I mean, I think that the first and really important point is that uh, conventional war is still possible between two developed countries and we shouldn't let that slip our minds and that it's still terrible when it happens yes. um, and we shouldn't underestimate you know the, the devastating kind of human impact that this conflict will have for generations to come on, on the Ukrainians. Um, I think another thing that we, we've learned is that Western unity can still be strong and we spend a lot of time, you know, arguing, especially transatlantic, but when it really comes down to the core things, we are united on, on some key topics. Um, even at EU level, uh, sometimes the EU can really struggle to come up with a, an, a united foreign policy, but it's managed to do that so far on Ukraine, which has been, you know, really a positive. Um, I think that will be tested, uh, frankly, uh, the longer that the conflict goes on. But but so far, it, it's really held up. Uh, and maybe lastly, you know, just to pick out something which I think is of particular interest to to us who spend our time, you know, looking for um, solutions to stakeholder problems. I think one thing that's really come out of this conflict is the impact that private citizens and indeed um, companies have have had. If you think of, you know, the volunteer hackers, for example, who have been busy um, at the beginning of of the conflict, and indeed, if you if you think about also the big big global companies who have pulled out of of Russia and taken their investments with them, and these things have really had a significant impact on 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 the financial state of this conflict. Yeah, that's an excellent point. We've seen um, a tremendous response, even from the the business community, and to your point, their their stakeholders as well. Really holding holding them accountable. Not that many of them had to be kind of forced to do it, but but really just a lot of attention on it from from all angles. Yeah, and indeed, some some backlash from, on those who were a bit slower to move. Yeah, totally. Um, you know, I, I want to jump back on that second point. Um, we we really did see the West come together. Um, you know, I, I don't want to necessarily compare it to to 
Cold War times, but but really, you know, a, a early test uh, since then. And watching a lot of folks not only lock arms, but I've been impressed by the um, continued commitment. We are now a year into this. I think a lot of folks thought this would last a few weeks, maybe a couple of months. Ukraine would fall quickly and the global community would have to respond in that sense. But here we are a year later where we're still kind of firmly behind it. Um, We see you know, a a lot of great support, both from the U.S. and Europe. And it looks like there's, despite some grumbling here in the United States, I think there's there's no end in sight in terms of that commitment. Um, I'm curious what you're seeing, you know, maybe in the EU is that uh, there are some big leaders like France and Germany and others who, who seem very vocally committed. Are there any disruptions within the ranks beyond that? I think it was, uh, I mean, you mentioned Joe Biden was, uh, in, in Kiev this week. Um, I think that was pretty well received, uh, very positively received across Europe. Timing was, of course, perfect just before, uh, President Putin's State of the Nation address. And indeed, just before there was a high level Chinese visit into Moscow. Um, so, you know, I think it's important to, to realize that during the the US midterms you know last november we from here in europe were watching very closely to see what the 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 likely commitment towards uh, ukraine would be like uh post election and whether or not we could rely on continued us support after after those elections and so i think it was you know no surprise that the german government spokesperson called that visit this week um a good signal i think that was the expression that was used and you're quite right there there is um you know that unity is still there none of us really expected uh i think ukraine to to be quite as resilient as it has been uh, um in this in this conflict and indeed you know i think we we need to remember as well that Ukraine has been at this not just for the one year that we're commemorating today, but but for almost ten years yes. since uh, Russia annexed Crimea. Uh, so you know this is, they they are in for the very much for the long haul. They've been they're they're looking very bullish um, at the moment about the the situation. Um, but let's see how things evolve. I mean, I'm, I'm not a defense expert, but, um, but the, the snows are melting. Things are getting muddy, but before too long, the, the ground will be hard again. And then we'll be able to see what that impact that has on, on really on the warfare element of this, of this conflict, which is pretty brutal. Um, I think another thing that, that, I mean, you talked about unity. I've mentioned that too, but I think one thing that we didn't really expect was the the response of the global south or what we're now calling the global yes. south um you know we we like to talk about you know the that that unity in in the west even among democracies but there are some significant democracies that that form part of that global south group um who have declared themselves neutral which is looking a bit less neutral than um than it, than it sounds uh so you know i think that uh, the impact of that is still to be seen in the years ahead, uh, even after this conflict uh, is over, which hopefully will be soon. Yeah, I think that's an important point and um, maybe a topic for a future podcast too. Likewise, with um, the positioning of of China, we will see today China present its plan. Um, 
quote unquote for for peace at the same time that the US is coming out with um some serious charges of of China actually aiding and abetting Russia's efforts and so we'll we'll continue to see that struggle between those two superpowers and how that's playing out in the in the global south and other parts of of the globe yeah, I think that would be a great topic for our future discussion. Yes. Europe seeing itself very much in the middle of uh, of that battle between the US and China. Absolutely. Um let me let me dive into some of the economics, the um supply chain. You know, we we all the conflict initially had some pretty significant impacts on global supply chains, energy prices. Russia's obviously a huge source of energy for a lot of Europe and elsewhere. Um, John knows this well, Fed officials here, you know, cited the war as a big reason why, um, you know, we saw inflation remain high for, for so long. Globally, we've seen those higher energy prices and and food prices, but, um, you know, maybe not as, as big of an impact as we quite thought. So I'm, I'm curious, Jill, how's the EU been handling these challenges? What have they kind of learned from from those lessons as well? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I mean, there's no question that Europe has been hugely over-reliant on Russian energy sources for too long. And it's it's clear that this conflict has, has pushed us into facing up to that, really. And uh, I saw a stat um, just this week that said that uh, Europe's Reliance on Russian gas has gone from about 83% or something to 20% uh, over the last year, which is really significant. Uh, and to achieve that sort of level of, of transition, uh, there's been a huge investment in renewable energy infrastructure, um, which is in line with Europe's um, climate change uh, goals. But, but also, um, through significant supplies of US LPG. Um, so, you know, the, the, the diversification of all those supply chains is, um, uh, is indeed, you know, opening up the, the other, other markets. I mean, the Russia and Ukraine is, of course, a huge source as well of, uh, agri-commodities and, uh, and minerals. Um, so losing access to those has also meant we need to start diversify, diversify where those, uh, those, uh, supplies were going to come from. Um, and that's led to a range of things in Europe, uh, not least, I, I suppose, the decision to reopen um, talks on a free trade agreement with um, the Mercosur countries of South America, which uh, for those trade watchers out there, they, you will know that that FTA was agreed a long time ago in 2019, but has been in the freezer since then and, and now um it's not the only reason but but definitely the diversification of supply chains has has forced the EU to look for other uh other geographies uh, that that could be friendly towards supplying some of those key commodities that we need yeah yeah that's uh we've seen the same here in the US through covid and this crisis of yeah. you know maybe Absolutely. we should have revisited some of those should have revisited some of that yeah. but the but the what's remarkable i think is that the um you know and, and encouraging to see is the huge support that eu citizens still have for for ukraine and for you know the the 
financing and of of supplies to Ukraine, um, despite the fact that, as you said, the oil the energy prices have, have risen dramatically, food prices also, and the cost of living is is really soaring. But the uh, the, the support overall for for what Europe is doing um, is is still very very high. I actually wanted to to wrap up and and end on a a similar point there, Jill. We've seen, you know, obviously a lot of of fast and strong support, both from governments and citizens, um, in support of of Ukraine. We've seen heavy investment on the the military side of things, but there will be a major um, reconstruction effort that's required. Once this conflict comes to an end, and I, I think I speak for all of us where we we hope that is much sooner than than later due to the human suffering and the toll it has taken. Um, as we think about re- rebuilding, um, and John, feel free to jump in here too. I know you've got some some expertise here. How prepared do you all feel that that the EU and the US and maybe how committed will they be to re- rebuilding Ukraine? I think the commitment will be there. I think it was interesting to see at last weekend's Munich Security Conference that the European Commission's uh, president, who is herself a former defence minister for Germany, uh, make very clear that she thought it was what she called unthinkable that Russia would not pay for um, for Ukraine's reconstruction. So that already gives an indication of where uh, she thinks the, the, the cash is going to come from for that. But I would imagine that um, many governments uh, around the world would be aligned with with that sort of thinking. Yeah. And as you know, well, Brian, obviously the U.S. commitment uh, is solid right now, but uh, it's far from unanimity on that. And uh, the 2024 election uh, might have significant consequences and ramifications for the U.S. commitment to a reconstruction program in Ukraine. Yeah, I I unfortunately think you're you're right there. We are seeing a a kind of loud and growing minority um within part of our political system that that's getting skeptical uh again, unfortunately, but but hopefully uh the US will will stay committed here as I I certainly expect Biden and this administration to do that. We'll see hopefully what uh comes in 2024. Um uh, with that, you know, obviously a, a tough subject, and I think we all um, wish we weren't here marking a, a one-year anniversary, but it is a, a testament to the resilience of Ukraine and the um, global support that they've received. Um, hopefully, we all will see a, a swift and peaceful resolution soon, but let me let me leave it there. Uh, I'm sure we'll come back to this topic many times over the course of uh, the next few months. Um, Jill, I want to thank you for for joining and um, for joining very last minute. I, I appreciate the the call, taking the call from overseas and and jumping in here. We appreciate it. And uh, John, as always, a great conversation. Um, to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to an, another episode. Uh, you can find. All of our episodes, wherever you get your podcasts, Spotify, Apple, uh, and of course, on our website, uh, um, follow us on Twitter at PentaGRP, and we will be back next week for another episode. Thank you for listening to the Macrocast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and share.